0: Don't let your heart be troubled, said Jesus. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, "'I am the way, the truth, and the life. "'No one comes to the Father except through me. "'If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. "'From now on, you do know him and have seen him.'" Philip said, "'Show us the Father, "'and that will be enough for us.'" Jesus answered, "'Don't you know me, Philip, "'even after I've been among you such a long time? "'Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. "'How can you say, "'Show us the Father.'" Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing the work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I've been doing, and they will do even greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Some incredibly potent promises, comforting phrases, mysterious ideas, particularly for the disciples as they hear it for the first time at this Passover meal. I guess if I was to put a heading on the first part of that passage, I would say troubled believers. Troubled believers, confused and uncertain. Troubled believers who are confused and uncertain. I think that we can see and hear a lot that will help us now. There'll be people in this room who are troubled, confused, hurting and uncertain. But Jesus, who was heading for the agony of the cross, we note from what's come before in the passages that lead up to this section of John's Gospel, that Jesus was also deeply troubled in spirit. Have you read that? In John 12, 27, Jesus said, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Also in thirteen twenty one, before this passage, Jesus says, that he was troubled in, it says he was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you one of, his, one of you is going to betray me. Just in the chapter before, Jesus outlines who his betrayer is in front of him. The one who dips his bread with me in this meal, he's going to betray me. He's the most self-aware person that this planet has ever seen. He's prophetically aware, he's got the anointing of a seer and he knows exactly what Judas has been up to before he gets to the table. And he's troubled in spirit, and he knows the cross is coming. He said in chapter 12, I'm going to be crucified. He uses this word, if a seed goes into the ground, if a seed does not go into the ground and die, it remains alone. He's not stupid. He knows the cross is coming. And in the agony of anticipation of the cross, this incredible God wrapped in flesh turns to his disciples, and he himself gives comfort to those who are at the table with him. This is, this is not, here, I know Neil's got a, a t-shirt again with hero on and we've got a crown of thorns on. Hero is not a big enough word for Jesus in this moment. You may have, you know, John Wayne or someone in the real world who you think, man, that's a hero. There is no hero like Jesus. Jesus, being prophetically aware, knows God is going to allow him to be butchered. And still in that moment, he's able to give comfort to his followers. Now, there's a lesson to all of us that we would struggle to measure up to, but need to at least work towards. That in our distress, in our troubled spirit, one of the best things we can do is lift our head up off ourselves, which is very hard. And I'm not saying that I can do it easily, nor can you. And look around you. I was doing street evangelism with Todd White in America. And I asked Todd, how... How do you hear God so well? Because everyone who's known me from being a boy knows I operate in the word of knowledge. But this guy, it was like he had a hotline to heaven. He said to me, Steve, I'm more aware of the people around me than I am of myself. This is the problem with all of us, you see. We're so easily moved back to the default of being self-interested. We're selfish creatures. All of us in our busyness, but the gospel is a rescue from selfishness. So when Jesus models to us as his disciples and asks us to follow him, he's saying, in my darkest moments, I was able to lift my head up in spite of my troubled spirit and look at those around and bless them with comfort. I, if there's anything that I say in this morning, and I feel this is from the Lord for you. The Lord's given me a mandate this morning. He says, comfort, yes, comfort my people. Bible student, right in the front row. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, Steve. Why does the Lord want to comfort you? Because he knows the people in this room who are troubled in spirit. It's really comforting to know that the God who loves you perfectly is aware of the trials of your life. It's deeply comforting to know that he is aware of what's going on at home or at work or in your finances or with your family or your friendship. He knows and he cares. He cares and he is the ocean, which Glenn spoke about before, the ocean of limitless resources. And he's looking on this church now in the same way as he walked amongst the candlesticks in Revelation and thinking, I know your deeds I know your needs. I know everything about you, and I care. Is it good to know that? It's good to know the Lord really doesn't just say he cares. He cares about you. Fear not, O Israel. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you walk through the fire, I'm going to be with you. When you go through the waters, they shall not overtake you. God is a comforting voice to his people through the ages. And today he speaks comfort to you. He says, I'm with you in your trial. I'm with you in your burden. I'm with you in the dark places at nighttime when you cannot sleep. That's for someone right now. By the Spirit. I'm with you then just as much as I'm with you in the daylight. I give you songs in the night. I restore you in the hard places. You see, the disciples that were present in that moment were confused and uncertain. And it became even worse because the language Jesus used was cryptic to the original hearers. They didn't get it. We have the benefit of hindsight. We know the whole scriptures of the Bible. They had a guy in front of them who said, I'm about to abandon you. You know, we we read this Passage at funerals, let your heart not be troubled, you believe in God, and that's appropriate. There, isn't, there is a not yet to go to, there is a heavenly quarter that's part of this, but ultimately in the context, Jesus is speaking to them about an imminent moment where he is butchered in their eyes, where they have catastrophic failure, and where everything that they were building for the last three years appears to fall around at them, and they, they just don't know what to do. And he has a brief meal with them to give this download from heaven, this pep talk to say, I know it's going to come and it's screwy what's going to come to you, but you're going to be all right. And I think the Lord would say to each one of us today, I know what you're going through and I don't want to impugn or undermine or belittle it, but you're going to be all right. It's going to turn out well in spite of it all. You see, the chapter before, you have Peter's bold confession that he'd be willing to die for Jesus. And in that moment of Jesus saying things like, I'm, where I'm going, guys, you can't come. Where I'm going, you cannot follow me, it says in chapter 13. Peter's the vocal one. I, I, I really understand Peter in the scriptures. And he's saying, I'll follow you. I'll die for you. You know, Speak before he thinks, you know. Maybe there's others like me that can understand that. I'm passionate to follow you. Jesus, come on. I mean, he was a tough guy. It was Peter the Rock Johnson. You know, he, 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 he hacked an ear off. <laughs> come on then, lads. Let's have it. I mean, he wasn't soft. He was a fisherman. But he didn't understand what Jesus was doing. And in that moment, that exchange, that confusing exchange in the same place at the same time, Peter's vocal interjections brought him to the place where Jesus couldn't leave it any longer. And he said, Peter, you're going to disown me three times. You're going to let me down. It's going to go messy for you too. And so right on the back of that, we join our passage today. And the disciples, you could cut the air with a knife. is just pushed back on peter and said even you the rock you're going to disown me they saw him probably as one of the leaders in the group and they're looking around the room and thinking well if he's going to disown you what is coming on us there isn't anyone more passionate than Peter. what are you, what is what are you saying lord where are you going the only and I don't want to press press anyone's buttons with this, the only modern parallel that I can think of is rather like the abandonment that comes, where you hear about the traumatic moment where two parents bring the children into the lounge or wherever, and I've heard these stories again, and they say to the children who don't know what mum and dad are gonna say, pick one. what pick one we're not staying together choose which parent to live with now again i'm going to leave that there because i know there'll be people potentially with that trauma in their life but the child looking up at the parent i can't pick one This is the abandonment felt in the moment by the disciples. Forgive me if that presses your buttons. It's like Jesus, what are you saying to us? Where are you going? Well, you know that you know where I'm going, and you know the way. Thomas asks a rightful question. Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? I I remember driving 20, 25 years ago. I'm so glad the Lord gave Rachel to me because some of these traits are still with me. Thankfully, I'm a little better. I remember once (laughs) going for a meal to someone's house. I was driving in the car. Rachel's in with me. And we're getting near to the place. And Rachel says, do you know what? What number do they live at? i like, oh, 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 I think I know where it is. <laughs> Point in the car and open, we get there by using the force. <laughs> she said, what do you mean you don't know where we're going? Oh, well, I think I'll know it when it's there. What do you mean you'll know it when it's there? <laughs> exactly the same thing. If you don't know the destination, you can't know the route. So Jesus is being incredibly cryptic. And he's saying, You know the way, you know where I'm going. No, we don't know where you're going. And you you know the way. What? He would often put these memorable phrases in that they're going to have to go away and unpick every time Jesus puts these mystery sentences in. And then they go and have a chat in the corner. Do you know what he's talking about? Eat my flesh, drink my blood. Is this now a vampire sect? What is going on with this guy? They had to go into a corner to understand what their master's saying. He's done it again, he's dropped a clangor. you know where I'm going? No, we don't know where you're going. I think this was a mature relationship now. They answered him straight, but we don't have a clue what you're saying again, Lord. And then he comes out with that beautiful phrase. I'm the way. Wow. It's starts to be burned into their consciousness. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except by me politically incorrect in today's world in our church we believe that all roads don't lead to Rome there is one God one Lord one faith one baptism one God and father over all who's above all and because of that we put ourselves at odds with the zeitgeist, the spiritual flavor of the world that says let's be let's be accepting of everyone's thinking Let's put our arms around one another and say everyone's right. And in that moment, they fail. Because everyone's right is not a logical conclusion to the question of who is God. Because the ideas of who, are, who is God is different across the world. And this is the challenging thing about what Jesus said in that moment. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Using the I am, as we said in week one, to say that I am the God who is the way to the Father. I am God who is the truth about the Father. I am the God who carries spiritual life. Why did he say it with those three phrases in tow? If you study the language, most commentators agree that the first one, the way, because he answers Thomas's question, is the principal theme of the answer. How do we know? We don't know the way. We don't know where you're going. I am the way. So he's answering Thomas's question, and then he bolts on truth and life. What he's really trying to say is that any expression of deity, he's the final full stop in that, in that answer. So he, later on in the passage, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father as well. What he was doing to his original audience, he was saying anyone that came before any prophet, any seer, any sage, any person who came, claimed to have knowledge of God, they bow the knee to the final revelation, which is God wrapped up in skin, and the only one who can say what the Father's like. If you've seen the Father, seen me, you've seen the Father. We're so familiar with this as Christians. It's only when you step outside the walls of the church that you realize that some people don't even know there is a God. Some people believe in schools to this day that the Bible is a fairy story or an ancient text that has no relevance to the now. It cuts against modern thinking. Women have to be silent in front of men. Well, that's not very progressive. Or homosexuals must be stoned. Well, that's in the Bible. How do we explain that? I don't agree with that, by the way. I've got to put that on tape. I have friends who are homosexual, who I love. But that's in the Bible. And so the people coming against Christian faith, they come to it from an angle that they are just confused as to why we even bother sticking to this ancient text. And I, I wanna suggest to you, whenever you're talking to someone, when they go down rabbit holes and say, but this, but that, what about the, the way that other world religions think? What about this in terms of homosexuality? Or whatever their issue is, don't go down those rabbit holes, bring it back to Jesus. There's always that question, who is Jesus that most people can't contend with? Jesus is the way. Jesus is God wrapped up in skin. If you've seen the Father, him, you've seen the Father. What does it mean to say this is the truth? Well, because he's the the latest and final expression of deity, there isn't a truer expression of him. There isn't more truth. There isn't additional truth. That's why in Revelation it says you can't add to the revelations. You can't add to the text. He's cutting against in the time the Gnosticism of the day. Because in mystery religions of the day of Jesus that they would have been familiar with in those days, there was this sense of hidden pathways, hidden ways to esoteric places, hidden ways to heaven. Jesus made it plain and simple and said, I'm the way. For us as believers who get this, who feel like this is going to play school instead of understanding, Jesus also said, follow me, didn't he? And which pathway did he lead us on to follow him? He said, take up your cross. Every one of us is called to go down the narrow and difficult way. And quite often when we're not, Exhibiting traits like Jesus, the Lord allows us to be in a place like Jonah, where the boat of our life is being shaken until we surrender again and yield ourselves to the Lord and to his spirit. The final word that I'll say on this is related to life. This is where the world needs to see the difference in you and me. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truest expression of the Father, that's why I'm the way, and I'm the life. This is key for getting there, getting to the destination. Spiritual life has to be seen in us. The world doesn't actually care what we believe. It's irrelevant to them. They want to see power. They want to see that it works. They want to see peace. They want to see that you have Christ in you. They don't care what you believe is your doctrine. And so that's the, this is why I like to pray for people, like to show them Jesus, because an argument is always subordinate to an experience. Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and the life. Let me come to this final idea that might bless you before we close. By the way, Gary Gibbs, when he was teaching us in Bible college, he said, if you don't know the answer students, because there was lots of kids who would crawl into classes and stuff and he'd challenge them and they'd not have the answer. And he would encourage them as they've crawled out of their student digs. Some, some of the people that were there were mature students and they were keen. Some of the other ones, they were like in their 20s and they'd just dragged themselves out of bed and turned up with their sleeping bag in lectures. And Gary Gibbs would always drop into the idea, into the class, if you don't know the answer, just say Jesus. So it became this, became this moment in the lectures where sleepy students who really weren't as, weren't as motivated as the mature ones, would blink and Gary would go, just say Jesus, like this. And it became this, this thing at Bible college. But in truth of what we were looking at, he is the answer to life's challenges. <clears throat> he is the answer to your need this morning. He carries spiritual life. He will lead us to heaven. He'll carry us through because in him was life and that life was the light of men. Did you notice that Jesus said he's going away and coming back again? A first century Jewish wedding picture. Jewish weddings actually began about a year before the ceremony when the future couple made a formal engagement. The public engagement is as binding as a marriage and cannot be broken, except by a legal divorce. Such a drastic action would only be taken if either party had been unfaithful during the engagement period. It's during this binding engagement period that Joseph, Jesus' earthly dad, finds out his future wife has been unfaithful, or so he and everyone else would have thought. The natural reaction would be to divorce her, yet Joseph does not divorce her, knowing that if he divorces her, Her life will be destroyed. Do you see the test that was on Joseph when Jesus was being born? He wanted to protect, cover, which is the nature of the God that was going to be in his wife's tummy. The implications for Joseph are huge. If he does not divorce Mary for her unfaithfulness, everyone in their little village will be certain that he is is the responsible party. In other words, Joseph chooses to share Mary's shame. As everyone views her, rather than let her suffer the consequences of a perceived sin. No wonder the Bible calls Joseph a righteous man. But let me go a bit further and link it to John 14. After that formal engagement period, the groom then returns to his father's house. This is the language. And the bride returns to her home to make herself ready. Think about Revelation 19:7. The bride has made herself ready. The bride prepares herself and remains faithful, waiting with anticipation for the appointed day. After the wedding, the new couple will move into one of the rooms of the multi-roomed, insular-type houses that were common in Galilee. And Jesus, saying in John's Gospel, therefore refers to this event, In my Father's house are many rooms. I'm going to prepare a place for you. As a bridegroom, Jesus brings his bride home, the very family of the Father. There's a parallel there, and I'm going to go deeper. Can I just say something about the Latin Vulgate translation? Lots of people say this as Christians. I'm going to get a dog kennel in heaven. You know, they downgrade themselves in the language they use about themselves. You might get a massive mansion, person X, but I'm going to just be allowed in my dog. Have you ever heard any language like that? That is just not what Jesus is teaching here. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms. He's talking about coming again for his waiting people. It's a parallel in the parable of the, vir- the wise and foolish virgins that even the, when the darkness gets dark in the days before the return of the Lord, people who are longing and desiring for the return of the king will be, along with everybody else, given a denarius. Do you remember that parable? Everyone getting the same reward. What is the reward, in, in a sense, being eternally with the Lord? Let me go on, because this builds a little. When the day of the wedding finally arrives, the wedding is an all-village event. Everyone has anticipated the coming of evening as when the wedding will commence. As the sun sets, the bridal party await with oil lamps ready for the wedding procession. When evening fully comes, it's time for the bridegroom to leave his father's home and proceed with his party through the village, gathering villagers along the way. The noise of the procession increases as they approach the home where the bride eagerly awaits. What if the bridegroom's delayed? Lots oh, so of people are concerned about the return of the Lord and believe in it's imminent. This is Jesus' provocative teaching in the Gospels. It's unthinkable that the bridegroom would be delayed. The sky getting darker, the village becoming silent, the bride's worst nightmare begins to unfold. No one possibly could expect this to happen, or would it? Of course, i said to you about the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, and the expectancy of some, and the dimming expectancy of others. Listen to this. When I think of this parable of the wise and foolish virgins, I think of the events in China following World War II, as communism took over the country, at that time, there was a thriving church. And as darkness was sweeping over the land, the communist takeover, many in the church were convinced it was the time of the bridegroom's coming. They had been taught that the church would be taken away from all difficulty and tribulation. Clearly, because of what they were suffering, it was time for the bridegroom's arrival, wasn't it? It wasn't, of course. Many remained faithful to the Lord, forming underground churches, and many suffered. Listen to this. Yet many fell away, and as I was praying, I was tearful as I wrote this down. Many fell away from the Lord because their faith was based on a theological position, a belief system, rather than the person of Christ himself. In his faithfulness and goodness, when their belief system was smashed, they had nothing left. I believe that the teaching in the passage read in John 14 points us to this idea that when Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, it's so important that Jesus is the answer, as Gary Gibbs says, that Jesus is the center of your life, that Jesus is the one you know intimately, the one that you've imbibed, the one that you carry within you as your light. If you fall away from grace, it's because you've chosen not to believe the truth. It's not because you've sinned too much. It's because you've lost faith in Jesus. And I want to encourage you to not turn away from the hope you first received, but to believe on the Lord. Why do we say this in this church where you've got so many faithful people? Because I believe perilous times have come. I believe there's a great falling away happening in certain pockets of the church. I believe there's a shaking happening that are causing people to question, is this the truth? Can we trust Leader X? Can we follow this church? Should we? There's a discontent about the church generally, broadly, particularly after the disconnect of COVID. And what Satan's trying to do is trying to dismantle the bride before Jesus returns. But the bride will rise up in opposition to that spirit and will make herself ready. She will contend for what's really important. Listen to this. The message of the parable in The Wise and Foolish Virgins is this be prepared. But how is one prepared for the return of the Lord? Those of the women in this room who have prepared for a wedding day know exactly what it is to be prepared. To be excited, to be expectant, to look beautiful, to get the dress on, to have the bridesmaids or whatever else you have around you to plan the day. To be prepared as a Christian for the return of the Lord, the bridegroom, is to make the coming wedding the focus of your life. To make the coming wedding the focus of your life, to live in purity and prepare everything necessary for any delay which will come with the brute, in the case of the Jewish imagery when the groom is delayed. I, I think there's all sorts of people shaking. Me and Glenn, we had a breakfast together recently, and we were planning for Christmas preaching series, which we've put in place already. It's called A Song for Christmas, but it's not the cheesy one. We have even done the graphics. But the first question I said to Glenn is, where do you think the people are up to? There's no point preaching the truth if it's not the medicine they need. So Glenn says to Wendy, where do you think the people are up to? Wendy's question, Wendy's answer was fantastic. She said, I think the people are troubled. Forgive me if it's not the exact language. And they need to feel loved. I said, I totally agree with you. And I think today's message is sent to comfort you and to focus you on what's important, to keep Jesus the main event in your life. Because I think people are not only troubled by events in church, but globally the world is being shaken. Do you not feel that? I was driving around, Skelmersdale yesterday, and I've got such a massive heart for that town. I really don't know what the Lord did in me years ago. Driving around Skelmersdale, nearly weeping, I, f- I find myself not able to go into the town without feeling emotional. I'm seeing people in the shops, and it just, th- this is subjective perception, but I, I feel that we're on a knife edge spiritually. I feel it's either God turns up in power and raises the church up with a different spirit, or this generation has gone to the dogs. It doesn't mean the Lord can't raise up a future generation. But I believe that it's really important that we come back to that place where the bride has a single focus to her life, getting ready for the return of the Lord. Do you, do you notice in First Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, you don't lack any spiritual gift. That's what he says to the Corinthian church that was full of sin, full of division, full of fallouts, full of impurity, people being excommunicated for sexual deviance. And yet in that text in chapter one, it says you don't lack any spiritual gift. What does it say after that? As you eagerly await for the return of the Lord. What am I trying to say with that final point? I'm saying the flow of the spirit is in the church When the church orientates itself towards the future wedding, because that speaks of love for God, irrespective of performance. So when the church collectively focuses on Jesus and the marriage of Jesus, the flow of heaven and spirit gifts through the church comes irrespective of how well we're doing performance-wise. That's what I'm trying to say with that final point. Please be encouraged. Let your heart not be troubled with the shaking that's going on. Keep Jesus the main thing. Make the focus of your life the return of the Lord and recognize that Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, gave a distinct call to any other world religion. It was entirely that he is the answer to every one of our deepest questions. Amen.